audio is from Deering Christian Church. Join us Sunday mornings at either 9 or 10.30 a.m. There is a somewhat recently, I'm, I'm not going to say really recently, but somewhat recently there is a hashtag that has become I've seen, I've seen coffee mugs, sweatshirts, hoodies, wall hangings, you name it. You can find it. Now, often, if you go from the realm of the shopping realm of the Internet and go into the more social media realm of the Internet and you see this hashtag blessed, you're going to see it included with many times various images or pictures. We, we saw a little bit of a representation with that, with the video before the sermon. Maybe, maybe it's a, a picture of a, of a newborn, a new, a new baby, hashtag blessed, or, or a vacation picture, a new house, a new car, a family picture with all of the autumn colors, just absolutely perfect. I even saw a picture this week. I think the guy misrepresented what he was supposed to say. It's a guy bench pressing 300 pounds. All right? I even counted the plates. All right, and, and it says hashtag blessed. I was like, I think he meant hashtag pressed. I think he kind of got that mixed up just a little bit there. But we throw it on so many things. It's quite popular. We looked at the idea of blessed, and we connected it to another word a couple of weeks ago. It was called happy. The title of the sermon was happy, happy, happy. And we learned that if we look to our Bible, what we have is in English. But the original Bible was written in a variety, by a variety of different authors over a large period of time. And the vast majority of it was written in either Hebrew or Greek. And when we see these words in our English translations, they are representations in our language of what was found there originally. And what we looked at a couple of weeks ago was that when you saw this blessed in our Bible, in both the New and the Old Testament, what you would find at times is the Greek word behind it or the Hebrew word. We looked specifically at the Exodus means happy. Now, on that note, and this is probably something I should have mentioned that week, there are other times we see blessed in our Bible, and there are other Hebrew and Greek words standing behind it. We get the same word, but there is a little more to them that looks a little differently. Hold that thought. We will come full circle to that here in just a little bit. You know what? As Christians, and what I mean by Christians is this, followers of Jesus. Okay? Followers of Jesus. And that, that, that goes through a lot of, of, of different realms, different churches, followers of Jesus. As Christians, we should always connect the idea of blessed or being blessed with Christ. Always. All right? You see, when he came here as a human being, he radically changed the blessed idea and the idea of being blessed. By God. To show that, we're going to look at a couple of different examples. Two encounters, actually, again, that come from the Gospel of John, chapter 3 and chapter 4. All right? The first encounter that we're going to look at 
I would say would probably be called by some, especially in that day, this guy was the picture of blessing. More specifically, the picture of the blessing of God. Now, in this first encounter, we have a man who is seeking Christ. And this encounter takes place because a man is coming to Jesus, right? We can read about it in John chapter 3, amazing chapter of the Bible, incredibly important chapter of the Bible. John chapter 3, we're going to read the first two verses. This is what it says. Now, there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you have come from God as a teacher, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. word that jumps off that page to me, it's just kind of interesting, is we. Um, when Nicodemus comes to Jesus, he just doesn't say, I, I know because of these signs that you come from. He says, we. Um, and I, I'm assuming that he's talking about his, his, his fellows, meaning those who are also Pharisees, priests, rulers. Right? So that's just kind of an enlightening thing to me because they're always pictured as the opposition to Jesus. Not all of them were. So, but back to Nicodemus here just for a moment. We got a guy who was a Pharisee. He was the religious elite of the day. He was not just a Pharisee. He was an important Pharisee. He was also a ruler of the Jews. So this guy, as we see, as you see a little bit more about Nicodemus here and there throughout the Gospels, you'll see he was a part of the Sanhedrin. I mean, this guy was up there a ways. He is a guy who when Jewish people of the day looked at him, they saw him and they thought, "That's, that's a blessed man right there. That is a blessed man, a man who is a walking, talking example of the blessing of God. So he comes to Jesus, and they're having a conversation. And Jesus is going to point out three things, make three major claims in his conversation with Nicodemus. The first one is this. I'm I'm just going to read a little bit of it. I'm going to just tell you a little bit of the story when it comes to the others. The first one is this. Jesus opens up the conversation with Nicodemus looking somewhat like this. Blessing comes from being a part of God's kingdom. And I'm telling you, when he's telling this to Nicodemus, he's preaching to the choir. This is something that Nicodemus would very much understand, be right on board with. Yes, absolutely. Those who are part of God's kingdom, they are the blessed. All right, so claim number one. Claim number two. Only those who are born again can be part of that kingdom. Okay, now Nicodemus is like, huh? (laughs) Say again, what are you talking about here? So let's just just read about it here a little bit, okay? We're going to skip down just a little bit to verses 3 through 5. Jesus answered and said to him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, how can a man be born when he's old? He cannot enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born, can he? Jesus answered, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of the water and the spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. So you've got Nicodemus like, okay, 
I'm born again. What is that? This is new terminology. This is a, this is a teacher of Israel. And it's, there's, there's some allusions to this in the Old Testament, but he hadn't quite gotten it. As a matter of fact, a little bit later, Jesus would say, how can you be a teacher of Israel and not understand these things that I'm talking about? And then Jesus goes on to give a, an obvious prophetic statement or vision, illusion, uh, illusion is not the right word, just an illustration of what was going to come here in a little over three years. And what that would look like is something that would take place on the day of Pentecost, and we're going to see some, some similar language. We got to visualize a little bit of that today, and that's an amazing thing. If you know what happens in Acts chapter 2, the very first gospel sermon is preached, the very first one ever. There had never been preaching of Jesus before as the way to God, the only way to God. Jesus had spoken about this, but what he was speaking about was what was to come. And the day of Pentecost, it was there. So then you have Peter, the rest of the apostles, standing in front of the crowd saying, you know that guy you put on the cross? He's alive. He's God's son. He's coming again. People were cut to the heart, it says. And they said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, what do we do? I mean, there are some in that crowd, I would be willing to bet, who had shouted, crucify him. They say, what do we do? Peter answered and said to them, repent and let each of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins so that you might receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. And what does Jesus say here? I mean, it, Unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. So, this is new language to Nicodemus. It's prophetic language of Jesus. Only those who are born again can be a part of this kingdom. And then he says something else very clearly. We call it John 3.16. And basically what he says is this. Claim number three. Christ is the only way to the Father. Jesus sums up this conversation with Nicodemus about, two third, or about a third of the way through this chapter. It's a pretty big chapter. And he sums it up in this. Blessing comes from being in the light. And Jesus says, I am the light. The, the light has come into the world. And he says, the world did not like that light. See, the majority of the world prefers darkness. You know why the majority of the world prefers darkness? You know what's easier to hide in? You've played hide and seek before. Is it easier to hide when it's dark or when it's light? Much easier when it's dark. I mean, you can hide there the whole time and sometimes think that they left you and they're playing some other game and just left you in your hiding spot. I'm having visions of being a child, the youngest of a brother and a sister who are sometimes mean to me, coming through my mind right now. Any young ones out there, babies of the family, stay strong, stay tough, okay? So much easier to hide when you're not in the light. Therefore, the world prefers the darkness. But Jesus says, I am the light. To be blessed is to be in the light. So our first encounter, we see this guy who's a picture of blessing. And he kind of gets his world rocked just a little bit about what the blessing of God really is about. Well, the second encounter, as you look to the next chapter, this, this gal, probably if a Jew was, was watching this encounter would say, this, this lady's the picture of misery. 
That's what this lady was. Now, this, this next encounter, uh, it, it's not Jesus, or it's not a woman seeking out Jesus for a conversation. It's Jesus seeking her out. A little different than Nicodemus. We can read about it in John chapter 4. For me, I've got to turn a page over here, all right? John chapter 4, beginning in verse 7. Jesus and his apostles, they were traveling to Judea. They were going through Samaria to do that. It's kind of an interesting thing, just that in and of itself. But they're outside the city of Sychar, and look what happens. There came a woman of Samaria to draw water. Jesus said to her, give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. Therefore the Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, being a Jew, ask me for a drink, since I'm a Samaritan woman? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. This woman is an outsider. Understand that. Jews and Samaritans, they despise one another. Do not like each other at all. On top of that, she was a woman, he was a man. And in a public way, those interactions did not take place like this. Not only that, this woman is coming to draw water. Look at the first part of the chapter, the sixth hour. That's noon, according to the Jewish time frame. That is not the time to draw water in the heat of the day. Most of the women of the city would come out in the cool of the day to draw water. She's not coming with them because she doesn't want to be with them. More specifically, they don't want her with them. And we're going to find out a little bit more about this woman as we go through this conversation. Jesus asks for water, and she's like, okay, what are you, are you talking to somebody else? You're a Jew. I'm a Samaritan. You're a man. I'm a woman. What are you talking to me for? Jesus Tells her, he says, if you knew who's talking to you, you would ask him for water and he would give you living water. Now understand the difference between those two things. Water that sat was just water. Stagnant, a pool of water if you will. Okay, Living water is a spring or it's a stream, something, it's, it's moving. It's moving and that's highly desirable in that time. They did not have the water filtration systems, people. All right, so if you want to drink from a spring or you want to drink from a well, what do you want to drink from? Well, a little different. It's pretty good. This is Jacob's well, too. That makes it really, really good. She's like, give me some of this living water so I don't have to come here and draw water anymore because Jesus says, you get this water, you never thirst again. So she's kind of lost in this conversation. They're talking about it a little bit more. And then Jesus says, tell you what, you want to know more? He says, go get your husband and come back here and we'll talk about it. She said, I don't have a husband. He said, I know. You had five husbands and the one you're with now, not your husband. She answers, uh, you're a prophet. Changes the subject. Kind of interesting. And then they go from that into this conversation about worship. She says, now your people say the temple is the place to worship. My people say that that mountain is the place to worship. Which is the right place to worship? And she says, one day the Messiah is going to come and he's going to change it all. Jesus looks at her and he, he basically, he says it in this, he says, there is a day coming. There is a day coming when the door to God's kingdom will be swung wide open and a dot on a map isn't going to matter anymore. You're not going to worship in a temple and you're not going to worship on a mountain. The worship will be in spirit. Do you understand that? The worship will be here and the worship will be truth. And that's what leads her to say, well, I know the Messiah is coming and when he comes... He's going to lead us in all of these things. He looks at this woman. Understand something. 
brothers and sisters, this is very early in the ministry of Jesus. It's just getting rolling. Even his disciples don't know exactly what this guy's about yet. And he looks at this Samaritan woman and tells her exactly who he is. She says, the Messiah will come one day. And he looks at her and he says, the one who is speaking with you is he. I am the Messiah. She rushes, she rushes into the town. She tells him all about it. Jesus and his disciples go into that town for a couple of days. His disciples incredibly uncomfortable, okay? Because <laughs> they're in a Samaritan town. And he's teaching and preaching to the people about the kingdom of God. And you know what the townspeople say to this woman? This woman that they've seen as an outsider for some time. There's a reason why she was at that well by herself. We've already talked about that. They say, now we know, not just from what were your words, but we have seen ourselves that this man is the savior of the world. I'm telling you folks, no Jew would ever say that this Samaritan woman of ill repute was blessed. She's not the picture. You don't throw a hashtag blessed on that, okay? But Jesus said otherwise. And this is one of those times in Scripture I would love to have Paul Harvey's The Rest of the Story, wouldn't you? Just to know what happens with this woman. Maybe, just maybe, she was still in Samaria when Philip would come along a few years later and preach the gospel. And the fruition of all the words that Jesus was saying would happen amongst the Samaritans. You read about it in Acts chapter 8. Pretty awesome. Jesus is the light. Jesus is the living water. And blessing comes through him. That is the story when it comes to blessing of these two encounters. But the encounters aren't alone here. Sandwiched between Nicodemus and the Samaritan woman, we find another guy in the end of chapter 3. And his name, Johnny B. Well, John the Baptist. All right? John the Baptist. Let me tell you a little bit about this guy. Forerunner of Christ. If, I mean, if, this is, if he was going to put a resume to get a job, this is what his would say. Forerunner of Christ. Last messianic prophet. Powerful preacher, fearless, and catch this one from the mouth of Jesus, the greatest of those born of women. Understand something, men. Since Adam, we all fall into the same category. Every one of us, born of a woman. And Jesus said of John the Baptist, there is no one greater who's born of woman than John the Baptist. A little bit about Johnny. He um, turned to John chapter 3 back. We, I might even, for me, it's on the exact same page. John's disciples were a little bit concerned about what they see taking place. You see, John was a rabbi. He was a teacher himself. And rabbis gathered disciples around them, students to learn from them. And John had his. Several of his, I'm not going to say defected, he pointed them towards Jesus and they left him and went to become Jesus' disciples. But some stayed with him. And they were starting to get a little upset about that guy that John baptized. He's like, you know that guy you baptized a while back, John? That Jesus guy? 
He's got more people come and listen to him than are listening to you. What do you think about that? And not only that, his disciples are baptizing too. You want us to stop them? We'll do it. We'll go stop them right now. And look at the response of John the Baptist. And this is a picture of decline. Just, just look at it for a moment. Verse 27, John answered and said, A man can receive nothing unless it has been given him from heaven. You yourselves are my witnesses that I said, I am not the Christ, but I've been sent ahead of him. He who has the bride is the bridegroom. But the friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly because of the bridegroom's voice so that this joy of mine has been made full. And then look at verse 30. This should be a statement of every follower of Jesus Christ. He must increase, but I must decrease. What an amazing statement by John the Baptist. His ministry was drawing to a close. And Jesus was just getting going. You would think that it was at this point in time that Jesus would have said, that's a great man right there. I mean, that guy that willingly lays aside what he has, what he has worked hard for, and he lays it aside for the Messiah. That is a great man right there. But let me tell you something. It wasn't when John was baptizing in the Jordan that Jesus gave him the title, the greatest. It's when John the Baptist was in prison, alone, and frustrated. So I told you, John was fearless. And even after Jesus' ministry was gone, he didn't shut up. He was still talking. And one of the guys he, he rubbed the wrong way was Herod. Because I told you, John's fearless. And Herod needed to hear something. The marital situation they found himself in wasn't right. And John was going to tell him about it. And as a result of that, John the Baptist found himself in prison. And while he's in prison, Jesus' ministry is exploding. He's got to be thinking, man, is he going to come get me out? You know, I mean, I'm in prison. So he sends his disciples, some of them, he sends them to Jesus. I'm sure they could come see him at times. And he says, go, go talk to the Messiah. And that, that is exactly what they do. Jesus reinforced who he was. And we can read about it. I want you to turn back to Matthew chapter 11. Matthew chapter 11, beginning with verse 4. These disciples of John come and they say, Are you the one? Are you really truly the one? I mean, our, our rabbi, our teacher, wants to know. This is what Jesus said. Verse 4 of Matthew 11. Jesus answered and said to them, Go and report to John what you see and hear. The blind receive sight. The lame walk. The lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised up, and the poor have the good news preached to them. And blessed is he who does not take offense at me. Jesus tells the disciples of John, just tell him what you see. The deaf, they hear. The mute, they speak. The blind, they can see now. The lepers are cleansed, they're made whole. The dead are raised. 
and the good news is preached to the poor. Yes, I am he, and blessed is the one who doesn't trip up over me. It's kind of a mild rebuke of John. Saying, yes, I am the one. Jesus follows that mild rebuke by that glowing praise. As, as, as the disciples of John are leaving, Jesus turns to the crowd and he says this. He says, what did you go out to see? A reed shaken by the wind? A man dressed in fine clothes? No, that's not what you went out to see. You went out to see the one who prepared the way for me. And he says, I tell you, of those born of women, there is no one greater than John the Baptist. You see, the world would never see John the Baptist sitting in prison, awaiting his coming execution. They would never see that as hashtag blessed. They would see that as a, as a man who is best is behind me. But here's the deal. God sees the world much differently. And the question we have to ask ourselves is how do we view the world? What would we call the blessing of God? You see, blessing of this kind does not revolve around circumstances. Blessing of this kind revolves around the Lord. Why don't you leave the New Testament here for just a moment and turn to the book of Job. If you open up your Bible right in the middle, you're going to find yourself somewhere in the middle of the Psalms. Well, you're only one book away if you're not sure where to go. Job comes right before it. A little something about Job and his story. This is found in the middle of our Old Testament, but chronologically speaking, it doesn't fit there. This is an old story. His life, his encounter with God, that all took place very early. This is a Genesis story, so understand that, okay? What we have when we look here at Job, and the question that I want to ask you is this. When you look to Job chapter 1, where do you think most commonly people would throw the hashtag blessed on? The Job of the beginning of the chapter or the Job of the end of the chapter? Well, let's just take a look at it. Job chapter 1, we're going to read the first three verses. There was a man in the land of Uz whose name was Job. And that man was blameless, upright, fearing God, and turning away from evil. Seven sons and three daughters were born to him. His possessions also were 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen, 500 female donkeys, and very many servants. And that man was the greatest of all the men of the East. Let me tell you, folks, hashtag blessed. I mean, seriously, this guy's got it going on. He's righteous, he's wealthy, he's got more kids than my in-laws. That's a bunch of kids, all right? I mean, things are good, and that's probably where we're going to throw our hashtag blessed. 
But then when we look to the end of the chapter, something looks a little bit different because I actually read the word blessed. Now, what's happened between here is this. He's lost every one of his children. They're dead. He's lost all of his possessions. And the news comes simultaneously. Dead. Raiders. Servants gone. Livestock gone. Everything gone. And then we get to verse 20 of chapter 1. And this is what it says. Then Job rose. He tore his robe and shaved his head. And he fell to the ground and worshipped. He said, naked I came from my mother's womb. And naked I shall return there. The Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Through all of this, Job did not sin, nor did he blame God. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Okay, remember I told you at the beginning of the sermon a little something about the Hebrew and the Greek and how sometimes the bless we see in our Bibles doesn't have the same Greek or Hebrew word backing it up? Two weeks ago when you look at blessed and we were looking at the Psalms, as I told you, the word backing it up was esher, meaning happy. That's not the word here. It's not saying happy is the name of the Lord. No, the Hebrew word is not Esher. The Hebrew word is Barak. B-A-R-A-K. And it means to kneel. You see, Job had nowhere else to go. He was on the ground, not throwing a tantrum, although... I'm sure he felt like doing so. He was on the ground worshiping God. The man, the woman, the child wise enough to kneel before God in all times of life is truly blessed. Because when we find ourselves In a time of difficulty, God is watching. He is there. And God understands suffering. This is something that's different between us and Job. As I told you, Job is early. Early, early, okay? We're way eons and covenants different than Job, all right? What that means is this. What separates us from Job is Jesus And the reason for that is we serve a God who knows what it is to suffer. Let me ask you a question, parents. Who suffered more when Jesus was on that cross? Parents, is it more difficult to suffer or to watch your child suffer? It wasn't just Jesus suffering on that cross, brothers and sisters. And yet at the same time, that was God on that cross. 
God understands the suffering experienced. And God understands the suffering viewed when his perfect son took the weight of our guilt upon his shoulders. And God the Father turned his back on God the Son. Our God knows suffering. There are ways some of you in this room have suffered that I can only sympathize with you. I haven't been there. I haven't. I can tell you I feel, I feel awful for you. That must have been so difficult. But I don't know what it feels like. Tell me this, when you've suffered, do you gather more encouragement from someone who just says, boy, that must be tough, or someone who says, I've been there before. I know what you're feeling. God knows your suffering. Here's the thing, though. God not only sees and understands, he has provided the antidote. I meet with a, with a small group of guys pretty regularly on Wednesday mornings and we're working our way through God's word and we've come to Revelation. It takes a little while to get your way to Revelation. And this past week we read a chapter in Revelation, Revelation chapter 6. It's about seals being broken and bowls being poured out. I mean, it's all kinds of, of figurative language, powerful language. And right in the midst of it, you find these words. They will hunger no longer, nor thirst anymore. Nor will the sun beat down on them, nor any heat. For the Lamb in the center of the throne will be their shepherd. You understand that? The lamb will be the shepherd? I mean, that's just crazy, but that's God at work, okay? And the lamb, the lamb of God will be in the center of the throne and be their shepherd and will guide them to springs of the water of life. What's that living water thing we talked about today? And get this, brothers and sisters, it says, and God will wipe Every tear from their eyes. Do you understand the significance of that statement? God will wipe away the tears of the blessed. Don't misunderstand. It's not like God the Father is going to have a giant Kleenex box. All right? And he's going to. Physically wipe away the tears from everyone's eyes. What this is talking about is an end to pain. An end to suffering. It will be nothing that point in time but a distant memory. It will be no more. And that is the future that God has for his blessed people. A future that is available only through the blood of Jesus Christ. As we come to our time of communion today, we, we celebrate an open communion here. And what that means, if you're a Christian, a believer of Jesus Christ, then you are welcome to share with us.
And when we do this together, we do it in this way. We remember the price that was paid so that we can have that future. And we thank our God for that price that was paid. But we also thank Him for what is He's preparing for us right now. I mean, seriously, can you think of an eternity of no more pain? From the pain that we, we carry around with us, which we shouldn't, but we do, to simply the pain of, man, I get up in the morning, my back kind of hurts. and I don't like it that much. No more. It will all be gone. That is the antidote, and the antidote that God has given us comes in the form of Jesus Christ, his son. And when we come to a time of communion, we celebrate his life, his death, his resurrection. We celebrate because there was a cross, and we celebrate because the tomb is empty. And we celebrate because he's coming again. And get this, folks. In the meantime, when we suffer in this world, he is with us.